Welcome in, everybody, to another installment of the Philly Experience Podcast. My name is Max Gretzel, joined by WHIP's Tanner Gilmartin and WIP's Tyre Hood. Gentlemen, how is everybody doing today? Man, I ain't got no complaints. I got no complaints at all. Max, you forgot to mention WHIP's winner of the NCAA <laughs> bracket. I believe that goes there, too. Impressive. <laughs> great. Considering, considering, you know, obviously we want to touch on that. And, and you know what? It's a good segue because I know a ton of people had Gonzaga winning this thing. I think 38%, 40% of brackets almost had Gonzaga. Man, that's ludicrous. I will say... For me personally, on my end, I do like my fair share upsets, especially when I pick them correctly in my bracket. Uh, when I don't, then I'm not accepting of them. But <laughs> I will say we had a, a fantastic Final Four, and I think at the end of the day, we got the we got the matchup we wanted to see, right? Baylor and Gonzaga, two of the best teams in the country, um, and I think that's what we wanted to see all season long. They were supposed to play earlier in the season, got postponed due to COVID, but uh, to come full circle and be able to close it out with the two best teams. I think was, uh, you know, pretty awesome considering how, you know, crazy it was all year with, with postponements for every school and, you know, pauses and things like that. So when you take away the whole college basketball season and even just the tournament in general with Baylor ultimately winning the whole thing, you know, what are some key takeaways that you guys had about it? Uh, well, first off, the I'm glad that the tournament, you know, went off with us, you know, without, you know, any type of – major you know major things um so i'm definitely grateful for that it was very entertaining i love that game i love the gonzaga (laughs) that gonzaga game before the final game oh my gosh that three was absolutely crazy that was incredible the lead up into it but here's the thing see once they hit that three and they started celebrating and whatnot i said in the back of my mind i'm like i don't think that Gonzaga's going to win. I think but I in my in the back of my mind I said Baylor was going to win because here's the thing. If you think about it throughout the history of sports, when a team wins in like that dramatic fashion where, you know, it's a, a walk-off shot or a walk-off touchdown or a home run or something like that, typically that team that won in that dramatic fashion typically doesn't do well the next game. If you primary example the Minnesota Vikings, okay, when they went to the NFC Championship to face the Philadelphia Eagles, that is a prime example. They won on a walk-off touchdown to Safan Diggs, and what happened that next week? The Philadelphia Eagles blew them out of the water. So I knew as soon as Gonzaga won in that fashion, I'm like, okay, Baylor got it. But it was the way Baylor won. Like their tenacity on defense, how aggressive they are, and how they just come together as a team, that's basketball and its finest, seriously. Yeah, Baylor did exactly what they came there to do. Um, the coach said it. They have one of the best rebuilds now of college basketball history. Um, to For Gonzaga to go into this championship game after – to you, you hit it right on the head – after having to go into overtime against an 11 seed um, and then winning by a Suggs – three-pointer that i mean they could have went into double overtime if he doesn't make that of course um the team was tired out now they had they had off they had um time to rest after that but i think baylor just showed their strength um they used their height to their advantage 
and they got things done. I didn't think it was going to be this much uh, of a difference in, in scores. I, I thought the game was no. going to go down to the wire. I thought it was going to be a two-point game. Um, but now the final four um, went how a lot of people expected it, except UCL, UCLA sneaking in. And I thought maybe they were going to be – they started the first first four until the final four. And uh, I thought they were going to make something happen, and they almost did. And it was a great game um, from them. But Baylor really took care of business in that championship game. Yeah, Baylor. I mean, that was a perfect point with their head coach, Scott Drew, right? They showed on the broadcast last night, Scott Drew getting introduced back in 2003 when their whole program was facing controversy and things like that with their previous head coach and taking that program from basically nothing and bringing it up to a national title you know, uh, years later is pretty impressive. But I think to start with UCLA, you have a team, like Tanner mentioned, the first four, they get past Michigan State in a hard-fought battle. We're able to, not going to say cruise through, but, you know, they they beat some pretty good teams to get to the Final Four, especially Alabama there, who I think was, you know, I think a pretty heavily favored to win that one, and they were able to get to the Final Four and pass them in the Elite Eight game and then be able to go up against Gonzaga, bring them down to the final, you know, closing seconds of the game and the prayer buzzer beater, bank shot, half court from Jalen Suggs, which was super impressive. But at the end of the day, I kind of wanted to see double overtime. I mean, it, it felt like one of those games where neither team really deserved to really lose that game. And for me, I think UCLA and Johnny Juzang and the run that they had, um, awesome. Just just to see that team and Mick Cronin, his coaching throughout the entire tournament, that's one thing that gets overlooked, coaching. You just look at the players. But his decision-making, the play calls and, and timeouts that he used here and there was – just perfect. I mean, I, it felt like every move that he made for UCLA worked, and that's ultimately what got him to the Final Four and, you know, put up a strong effort against Gonzaga. Now, on the other side of the script, you have Baylor and Houston. Um, Tanner and I know Houston from our AAC conference with Temple, so we got to see them a few times this year. They're a super impressive team. Uh, again, a bunch of guards that could shoot the ball well and ball handle and pass, but they just looked outmatched, and everybody did this year against Baylor because those three guards, you have Davion Mitchell for Baylor, um, who was great all season long. He won the defensive player of the year in the country. Macy Oteague, he felt like every shot he took last night was going in. It, awesome, awesome performance. Mid-range, threes, awesome. And then the player to the tournament, you can't, can't mention Baylor without their star player, Jared Butler, the point guard, being able to shoot the three ball and, again, being named most outstanding player of the tournament. Uh, well-deserved for him. So at the end of the day, I think we can all agree that Baylor was the best team and they showed that. And a lot of people like to look at the upsets. We look back at Loyola Chicago in 2018, cruising to the final four. At the end of the day, this season, I think we got the matchup, but not only the matchup, I just think the best team came out and, and won. Now, I also want to bracket, so I can't brag too much. <laughs> I don't really want to. Because, uh, T, again, listen, the, th the key thing when picking a bracket and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and say I'm Mr. Strategic. I know what I'm oh, doing. Oh, here we here, go. But here we go. <laughs> everybody's taking Gonzaga. If you want to make a difference and follow the leader, if you're gonna follow the leader, you're gonna come in second place. You gotta you gotta go outside the box. So you gotta pick you know a different team that you think is gonna be able to do it. And I got lucky this year with Baylor and Gonzaga. Tanner, I'm sure you had a couple of solid picks. Where was the turning point for you and your bracket being? What was the matchup where it was like, wow, okay, I won, but everybody else you know didn't. What was that one key matchup for you that really put you ahead? I think what really helped me was now this is the only bracket I filled out, but what was really helping me out was that I was three of four for the final four. Um, I thought Florida state was going to get in there. 
um, UCLA, obviously they took their spot, but what really did it for me was everyone above me had Gonzaga winning it. Now I went into this thinking, of course, everyone wants this perfect season to happen. Um, last time it happened, Larry Bird was, was on the team, uh, when it happened. And so I knew this wasn't going to be the year I, I sensed it. I had too much hype around Gonzaga, too much hype, um, had to go difference. And actually one person above me had Houston, um, another person had Gonzaga. So that that's really what the turning point was, but it's really the upsets that I got the most points of, um, what I do when I'm looking at matchups, I determine who's going to win by the stats of three point shooting, um, field goal percentage and how many games they've won before this tournament. Um, how many straight games, what are they going into? What streak are they going on to? And that all determines and it, it helped me at the end. Yeah. Free throw percentage is huge too, right? Because the team, when they come to crunch time, you don't knock down free throws. You got to look at that percentage. And that was huge for, you know, matchups that I was able to pick as well. And those, those upsets you mentioned, you have a, you know, a team like Ohio upsetting Virginia. If you had that one, that, that gives you extra bonus points. You know, I, I think I had that. I don't know if you did as well. Um, I'll have to look back at my bracket because I did have some surprising ones and some that I really last second changed my mind and it ended up happening. Um, and that's, you mentioned it earlier. That's really what goes into March madness and picking your bracket. It's, it's your gut feeling. You don't want to go with your heart too much. Um, but, but it's really your gut feeling. Is this team going to upset and how are they doing this season? Underrated, overrated. And that's really, yeah, that's what goes into it. Yeah. To put a bow on the conversation, I think one guy who in my bracket that basically took this one matchup and just boosted him into the top three automatically was that Abilene Christian. I don't know what, I don't know what he was thinking. We took Abilene Christian to beat Texas. Cause I know a bunch of people uh, that I knew at least had Texas going to the final four and be able to push through and they were upset in the first round. So having a 14 seed beat a three seed early on, get you those bonus points, um, you know, luck uh, obviously, but at the same time, if you, if you, it, it depending on how your scoring works in your bracket, but for me, it's just awesome to have it back. I think even if you don't watch college basketball, it's one of those things where I know somebody that just that picks the bracket based off who has the coolest mascot. I mean, it's just it's fun, it's entertaining just to have the tournament back and to have the matchup that we did last night. Wish it was a little bit closer. I think the game of the tournament obviously was UCLA Gonzaga that kind of yeah, happened definitely. in the final four. At least it didn't happen early on in the tournament, so it was kind of towards the end. So we got um, you know a heroic effort, so to speak, from UCLA. Just wasn't good enough at the end of the day but to have this tournament back and even going forward hopefully next year we we are able to spread it out again i'm not and indiana did a great job uh, indianapolis with with the whole hosting city and all the uh, venues maybe we're able to spread it back out next year we'll see but super excited and now to move on super excited about this philadelphia phillies team who are start four and oh which i don't think any of us would have expected if you told us that you know in the preseason spring training but being able to sweep the braves Eflin pitched great. I know we ex kind of expected Nola and Wheeler, so I don't want to harp on them too much. To Andrew pitched well. McClutchin. Zach Eflin pitched great, and I think he was one of the names that was the key for us, be being that third starter and being able to give us three legit guys at the top of this rotation to help push us to a, hopefully a playoff spot. His start was key against the Atlanta Braves. And then most recently, you look at Matt Moore against the New York Mets the other night. I'm not going to say that it was a great start for Matt Moore. His pitch count rose there in the third or fourth inning. I believe it was the fourth. And the Mets were seeing this pitch as well. He, he He's one of those pitchers there. Listen, he was in Japan last year, and he was close to going back, to be honest with you, until 
he realized that the Phillies gave him an offer. And, you know, I think Tom McCarthy on the broadcast even said he had multiple offers from other teams, but he wanted to play for a contender. Not only that, but a team that, you know, needed pitching and where he was going to get an opportunity to slide in here and be the fourth guy. Not, you know, the best start that you want to see from his, at least his first outing of the season. I'm not going to write him off yet. I, I, I was listening to people, uh, you know, on Sports Talk Radio saying, oh, you know, the Matt Moore experiment has failed and, Listen, it's it, only been one game. The, the Mets line, yeah, one game, and the Mets lineup is good. I mean, it's a good lineup. Hopefully, he's able to bounce back to his next start, which will be Sunday night baseball at the Atlanta Braves. Now you look forward to Chase Anderson's start against the New York Mets, and Marcus Stroman's going to toe the rubber on the other team. But before we get to this matchup with Chase Anderson and Marcus Stroman, you have to look back on the Mets pulling Jacob DeGrom, who was <laughs> just breezing through the entire Phillies lineup. It felt like. Brees Hoskins, other than, you know, his early hit off the wall, trying to stretch a double into a triple, got thrown out a third. Other than that, there really wasn't too much offensive firepower up until, you know, that crazy eighth inning where the Phillies, you know, bursted out to a big lead. Alvarado shaky in the ninth, let's be honest. Got his pitch count up over 20 pitches, but able to close the door with Hector Neres not being available. So much to talk about through the first four games. When you guys take a take away and look at the first four games for Phillies, do you look at that, you know, that comeback last night? Obviously, because it's frustrating reminder, you kind of still touch on that opening series sweep of the Atlanta Braves, who, you know, let's be honest, probably the favorite coming into the season, defending a or NL East champions, being able to sweep them out of Citizens Bank Park, or, or is it a combination of both? Now, don't get me wrong. I, I am excited at the fact that, you know, they're they're starting off four and oh. Um starting pitching has been has been really good. However, I'm going to kind of tamper back everybody and be like, you know, look, look, it's four games. We still got 158 more of them. Let's relax. Let's calm down. Let's let's start. You know, let's just take this one step at a time. This relationship's going way too fast. All right. <laughs> look, I understand everybody's excitement. They, <laughs> the comeback, I think, was just like the the bow on the top of a present. All right. It was just it. That just cemented everybody's excitement. Like, oh my gosh, this team didn't give up. The ground was still kicking our asses throughout the entire game up until the manager stupidly pulled him, which to this, <laughs> for some reason or another, it's not clicking in my head as to a, a good reason as to why when he was dominating the entire Phillies lineup, like you said earlier, Max. So... Uh, yes. Am I encouraged? Yes. But I, I have optimistic caution going forward because there's still concerns I have with this uh, with this bullpen. And here's the thing. Um, <laughs> look, I understand, you know, everybody is excited, but there was a that one game where Hector Neres came in and gave up. Gave up some of those hits and gave up some of those walks. Look, uh, why? Why? Why Why is it necessary to put him out there as the closer? Can you find somebody else? Hector Neres scares the living hell out of me every single time he comes out to that mound. All right. And then Tanner, to make matters worse, Tanner's at the game on Sunday, and he sends me he sends me a video of Hector Neres walking to the mound, knowing full and damn well how I felt about him. That was completely unnecessary. Cause then I started panicking as soon as that message came through. Like, 
AT. Yeah. I had to witness that firsthand. I was there. I had to witness him almost blow the game. Oh, gosh. The, the fact that, oh, God, he almost blew that game. Uh, why, what do these coaches see in the acting there? That's besides the point. I'm, I'm not fussing. Look, uh, here's another thing that also kind of raises my eyebrows a little bit. Why does Andrew Knapp have the only home run on his team? I have a problem with that, too. I'm just saying. Now, I'm not going to sit here and overhype this 4-0 start. I'm not impressed at all yet. I uh, I believe it was the 2019 season the Phillies started 4-0. Mm-hmm. And I believe, it. yeah, it, it started off with a sweep to the Brave, of the Braves. And then I believe that first loss was because the Phillies walked in the winning run. I believe that's how it went. We were at Monco. Everyone was hyped about the Phillies. People that never watched baseball wearing Phillies stuff. It was it was an overhyped um, start of the season, and then they finish 500 exactly. I believe it was they were 81 and 81. Um, not, you know, that's that's what Phillies baseball was to us—a fall apart at the end of, end of the half of the season—and that's really what we need to look for. We can't be too excited about how they're starting off. And I, I want to go back to Matt Moore's. Uh, debut as a Philly. Now he he did have a great start to his debut, but it's how he finished on the mound that really is gonna is gonna determine if this project did fail or not. Now we're not gonna I'm not gonna count this game against him yet. I, I need to see more. I need to see at least at least two more starts until I can determine what Matt Moore really is. He goes in, Pilar flies out, Lindor is struck out looking and Conforto, I, I think he, he struck out, and it was it started off really well for Matt Moore, and it was he got in trouble in the third inning. Um, it was actually DeGrom got that hit that, that Moore couldn't hang on to, and bases ended up getting loaded, and he finished that inning with 31 pitches, and that's when I knew he was, you know, start to um, – He's getting ready to pull him out, but they kept him in a little too long. Um, his welcome was a little expired at that point. But now my question to you guys is, did the Phillies win this game or did the Mets lose it? <laughs> yeah, man, that's a good that's a good question. question. <laughs> that's an excellent question. Honestly, because to pull – to pull Degrom out, yeah. Um, a- after what he's doing against our batters, um, really doesn't make sense to me. Um, against a team where you know their bullpen still is struggling, um, the guys aren't really connecting with the ball a- as they should. Um, and it's, I believe, Degrom has yet to give up a a home run against the Phillies and starting, um, for the Phil against the Phillies. Uh, I think honestly, the Mets lost that game. The, like you said before, you hit every every point necessary with the pulling of Degrom. It was completely unnecessary. Degrom basically dominates the Phillies each and every out. So I don't understand the reason as to why you pulled him, especially considering that he was still dominating the Phillies. You had a couple runs on the Phillies, and the fact that you just lost that game based off of you know because you pulled the starter. The Mets lost this one. Let's be honest here. Now the Phillies took advantage of their utter stupidity, but in all honesty, the Mets really lost this one. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think I might take the other side of the argument here and just say the Phillies won the game because 
I think Jacob DeGrom from the Mets coaching staff was capped around 80 to 85 pitches, and he was up at 77. So bringing him back out for the seventh inning probably would have pushed him over that threshold. That's the reason he was pulled in the sixth or after the sixth inning. So after he's taken out of the game, now again, if he's, you know, this this is like almost a Gabe Kapler situation. You look back when Aaron Nola gets pulled, when Kapler's first day managing for, or first game managing for the Phillies, he pulls Aaron Nola in Atlanta with only like 60-some, 70-some pitches. And I think it was in like the sixth inning at that point or seventh inning maybe. But this is a completely different scenario. Jacob LeGrand's first start of the season. First off, he gets, he gets pushed back three days, so his routine is already screwed up from the start with you don't want to mess with the best pitcher in baseball, so I understand that. Then you come in with familiar faces. At one point, Aaron Loop comes in. We know him from a few years back. He was part of the Phillies bullpen, the lefty. He's terrible, so gave me confidence off the bat because I was like, Aaron Loop, I recognize that name, and you know if he's a part of the Phillies bullpen history of the last five years, you know that he's god-awful. So that gave me hope that we were able to scratch across some runs and not only that, but, you know, we went from 2 nothing to 5-2 just like that in the snap of the fingers. Now, we got some luck with that throwing error home off McCann's glove, obviously bounced over his head and then scored an extra run off that. Harper was able to come around and score. But Jacob LeGrom, if he stays in that ball game, the Phillies probably lose. I think we can all agree with that. But the fact that his pitch count was not getting up there, but where, where his threshold was, that's at 80 pitches, he was at 77, was the reason he was pulled. And then the Phillies, like T said, took advantage of that. You got to give them all the credit. You know what? This reminds me of a different scenario again, but Blake Snell in the game six of the World Series, pulling Blake Snell out and then losing that game to, to the Dodgers yeah. and the Dodgers going to, to win the World Series. But that's really what that reminded me of. And of course, different situation. This is, you know, the first game for the Mets and that's the World Series for the Rays. But just pulling out a pitcher at the wrong time is really a crucial part of baseball is of course, the pitcher and how you manage that pitcher. How's his arm doing? Um, can he pitch these next few games? And it, it, that's really what it boils down to every game it, is how the pitcher's doing, how he starts off. Yeah, I mean, listen, and now Blake Snell's pitching in another uniform. Like, if you knew you were going to trade him in the offseason, who the hell cares if his arm freaking falls off there on the World Series mound? Like, just use him and get the outs, and then he's gone at this point. So, uh, I agree. It's a good, it's a good, uh, good comparison. And, you know, now look at this Phillies team, the only undefeated team in baseball now, albeit the Nats haven't played a game yet, and they will do so today, 405 um, at home against the Atlanta Braves. So we'll see what kind of energy, what kind of juice they have. They should have some energy considering they're chomping at the bit to get out there and play a game because they've been paused with their COVID issues. The Braves, again, they haven't played since Sunday either because they got their game again, obviously postponed yet last night against the Washington Nationals. So we'll see what kind of energy and juice that they bring. Max Scherzer will pitch, I believe. So, the Phillies only on the field team in baseball. And you got to talk about this bullpen. Now, T came out to shoot all negative. I don't get the negative energy with the Phils right now. Listen, 4 0, you got you to gotta, you gotta ride the wave while it's high. T. You can't just talk about this team and how bad their bullpen sucks. 13 innings, one earned run. And it was a cheap, listen, it was a pretty cheap hit, in my opinion, at least a couple of them last night against, you know, Francisco Lindor had that, you know, that bloop out to right field. Like, the 4 0 got one off the hands. You know, it was, it was a pitch inside. He, he was able, you know, fight that one off in the right field. Bryce almost made that diving catch. Um, he probably could, could have laid out for it a little bit more, but uh, he doesn't want to ruin that hair. Now, don't get the hair dirty in the grass, Bryce. Don't Jeez, get the hair. I knew, I knew this. I knew this was going to come up at, at no, one point. No, you didn't. No, you nah, didn't. Nah, nah, nah. That was, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. But, but, but yeah, for? definitely scared me a little extra that uh, that he wasn't able to make that play. And then Alvarado 
the thing about Alvarado is, yeah, he throws 101 miles an hour, but he was up at, what, 25 to 28 pitches. I was starting to get a little worried. Is he going to lose some gas? Luckily, Pete Alonso crushed that thing to the warning track, too, for that final out. He was able, Bryce just able to coast underneath of it. But let's go to tonight's game. Are you Chase Anderson? You have Marcus Stroman. Stroman, who, you know, I think is a good pitcher, not that great. And I think Chase Anderson is very underrated. I think this is guy's going to, now listen, he's going to go out there and pitch seven shutout innings like Zach Eflin or, you know, Wheeler Nola have done so far this season. No, but can he give you five to six and maybe two earned runs? I think he can do that. I think he's capable. He's had success previously in this league. I personally think he's better than Matt Moore. And that's not just because of last night's start from Matt Moore. I, I truly feel like Chase Anderson's the better pitcher and has had more recent success in the or at the big league level. So when you look at tonight's matchup, are we going to go 5-0? and Do you expect us to have a letdown? Eventually, we're not going to go 162-0. Is that game uh, going to happen tonight, that first loss of the season? It's a possibility. Um, it, it is it's a possibility. You know, you're going in with Chase Anderson, so, you know, the, we pretty much had question marks about these, this starting rotation, the four and five spot. Um, we, just, we just went into a whole discussion about Matt Moore, and, you know, people are already down on Matt Moore, which is completely unfair. You know, and, you know, we'll see tonight how Chase Anderson goes. We'll see how this, you know, end of the rotation, how this, you know, squares out. But I wouldn't be surprised if they lost tonight. And, and, and you know, it's going to happen. It's 162 games, people. It's not going to be the end of the world. You know, it's not going to, you know, the sky's not going to fall. This isn't going to be, you know, another disappointing, you know, Philly sports team season. It's not going to be one of those things. So if it happens, just just let it happen. Just just relax, people. Relax. It's all right. I think this would be the game that the Phillies, um, that they would drop. Um, I, I think going in, the, the Mets, they got their first game out of the way. Um, they're definitely not going to make the mistakes that they made in the last game. Um, this game field error wise, hopefully not. Well, you know, not hopefully, I mean, you know, it's the Mets, but, um, <laughs> I think that you're going in with, with Anderson on the mound, new pitcher, figuring out what he has, what kind of stuff he has. And it's kind of up in the air because one thing you're going against an unproven pitcher, uh, you, they, the Mets could be surprised by him um, and really throw their game off. Or it could just be the Mets unloading, unloading after that loss um, last night. But I do think that there's a good chance that the Phillies are going to lose this game tonight. One thing that concerns me and shouldn't be too much of a concern, but it does was the cameras quickly flashed that Mets dugout last night after the loss. And I saw people clapping and, and shaking hands and stuff. It's almost like, you know, they, they were okay, not okay with losing, but it's like, okay, we're going to get them tomorrow. That, that eerie feeling. And another thing that pissed me off, Adam Hazley on the center field, losing that ball. I mean, come on. Like, like you we piece don't have of Swiss cheese. Field in this team. He took like four steps back and that thing was off the end of the bat. I mean, I could even easily tell. And I was, you know, watching on TV. I wasn't even on the field. That, that ball was shallow the whole way. I don't even understand why he was running all the way back there. And he had an error from Reese, uh, which led to, a, I believe a run or two, uh, I think, I don't know if it was a bunt or something there uh, down the first baseline. I know he um, turned or he, he lost the ball. Long story short, the defense last night was terrible. And I need to see better defense from this squad going forward. I think Didi Gregorius had a throwing error. It wasn't Reese's fault, but he got the ball. He had time. And instead of setting his feet and throwing, he like threw it off his back foot into the dirt. Reese wasn't able to pick it. I think they had two or three errors last night. But you, you don't expect that from a team that was pretty clean in the first three games this season against the Braves and then you know, have a letdown, especially when Matt Moore needed to get out of that goddamn inning. Adam Hazley 
that, that cost it. I mean, your pitcher's out there struggling to get an out, and then you just let that one drop in. I mean, Odubel, uh, probably knocking at the door sooner rather than later. Which you understand what I'm saying? You. Agree. Like, we could have expected it. We could have expected Herrera to come back up. Maybe not, you know, in the in the first month, which is the way it's going right now. The way Roman Quinn and Hazley are playing could very well be within the first month of this season, but that remains to be seen. I think we have the transition, and you can't talk with the Philly Experience podcast without talking about the Eagles and a trade that went down yesterday about the Jets and the Panthers making a swap there. Sam Darnold going to the Carolina Panthers, who again hold the eighth overall pick in this upcoming draft for second, a fourth, and a sixth. So. Joe Douglas continues to make some moves up there in New York. And guys, for you, when you look at this trade go down and you see Sam Darnold going to Carolina, for him, probably no better scenario. First of all, the Jets have been awful. He, he, he's been not, – not that he's been – well, he hasn't been good statistically, but he can't put it all on his shoulders with the talent that's around him. The thing that concerns Eagles fans is that's one less skilled player that could possibly be available because we thought the Panthers were possibly looking at a quarterback with that eighth overall pick now that they have Teddy Bridgewater and Sam Darnold on their team, both they probably won't take one. So when you look at this, do you think about it as an Eagles, you know, you know, misfortune or is it more, wow. Okay. Like Sam, like is the trade I pop into you with, with the, the player and the pick swaps, or do you look at it more of the Eagles standpoint where, well, now maybe that, that loses an opportunity first to get Jalen Waddle or Devontae Smith or somebody. Howie Roseman, what the actual f- are you doing? This is why I was so pissed about the fact that he traded down this early. And I understand, you know, people have said that, you know, if a deal is there, you got to take it. People aren't going to sit on deals. I understand all that. But now when the Carolina Panthers, when you were ahead of, you were slated ahead of the Carolina Panthers, all right, Carolina Panthers didn't pick till the eighth pick. Now, with the Carolina Panthers trading for Sam Darnold, that's another damn playmaker that you could possibly have off the damn board. This is the reason why it was stupid to trade down in the beginning. Because now, you're going to be fighting for whatever the hell is left at pick 12. All right? It was a stupid decision to trade down. It was asinine. It was completely irresponsible. And you know what? Howie Rosen better know what the hell he's doing. That's all I got to say. He just better know what he's doing. There better be a, a out of the park playmaker at 12 that we don't know about that's going to come in and change the dynamics of this team because i kid you not if it don't happen i i'm going to slap somebody i kid you not i'm so sick I, I, i'm just i'm just so sick at that trade let's hope i mean let's just get this draft coming already it feels like we talk about it week after week hopefully they get a good trade because i don't want to have to listen to t start screaming every single week with how bad <laughs> our player sucks that we draft so tanner help us out here so just to run over this trade again, it, it's the Jets um, traded, obviously, Sam Darnold to the Panthers for a 2021 sixth-round pick and second and fourth-round selections in 2022. This is a win for the Panthers and, more importantly, Sam Darnold, a guy who hasn't been able to express his athletic talents as much in New York. Now he'll get a chance even longer, um, longer season now, too. Um, with a 17-game season now. And so when I initially saw this, I was only focused on the Panthers and how they got a, a more 
it's weird to say unproven because Sam Darnold's been in the league for a few years, but he really is unproven still. We don't know his potential really because he's been playing on the Jets. I think now, so the Panthers, they get Sam Darnold, obviously. T, you mentioned they're at the eighth pick. The Jets already know. They already knew they were going to draft a quarterback. Correct. They already knew that. So what they're pitching to the Panthers is, look, we're going to draft a quarterback. Sam Darnold's already going to be on the table. Other teams are, are going to catch word of that. They're going to be more interested. Why don't you get Sam Darnold now while he's you know more underrated on the market? And the Panthers do that. Now they're going to go ahead and draft a playmaker, Kyle Pitts, if he's still there. That'll look great. You have Anderson already, and it's the Panthers are going to look like a, a a more fresh team. Um, now there's still the situation with Teddy Bridgewater, and now you can get more by trading Teddy Bridgewater. Um, this is a great situation that the Carolina Panthers are in, and New York Jets. Now Sam Darnold is their sixth straight first round pick that they traded, and what? they've just become the laughing stock of the NFL more so taking that crown from the Cleveland Browns. The Browns are now they made it to the playoffs. Uh, the Jets are just all the way down there. Everyone's laughing at them and they just seem to make it worse for themselves. It's stupid. Uh, you gotta, you gotta look at what they could possibly do. In the, and obviously we still have to see how this draft plays out, but the Jets are one of those teams with the amount of picks that they have can turn this thing around quickly, whether it be through a trade Again, whether it be through just hitting on their picks because, you know, they're going to take Zach Wilson, and I think that's one player, or at least second overall. We knew Trevor Lawrence would go first in the draft at least a couple months ago. We would have said started that pick two. Now it looks like it's going to start at pick three with the San Francisco 49ers because we figure Zach Wilson will go number two to uh, the New York Jets. So I think this is going to be a good move for Sam Darnold. I think, you know, he's never gotten a fair shot with the Jets. Now moving to Carolina, he'll have DJ Moore, Robbie Anderson, Christian McCaffrey, just a better situation for him overall in general. And again, a Panthers team that offensively was pretty decent last year, but again, underperformed, didn't make the playoffs, and had some games where you think, okay, Carolina last season looked pretty nice, and then other games where they come out and they just lay a complete egg. So that's going to be a team to watch this year, and I think possibly a playoff team because of the fact that, you know, maybe they can sneak in there as a wild card. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I know Tampa Bay is still obviously going to be favored. Drew Brees retires. Who knows what's going to happen with the Saints? That leaves the door open because of the fact that uh, now the Falcons, a team that has the fourth overall pick, they're rumored to be looking to trade out, I believe. And there's going to be teams calling nonstop, I'm sure, leading up to the draft, trying to get that fourth overall pick. But I also want to touch on here the Deshaun Watson situation, because this is a, t a situation that's kind of been going quiet the last couple of weeks, obviously, with all those uh, reports coming out with him, off the field issues. But the Eagles have still checked in on Deshaun Watson, I'm told, or at least I've heard, I should say. And also you have to look at the Carolina Panthers situation where they thought, you know, maybe they could get Deshaun Watson in a trade. Now that the fact that they've gotten Sam Darnold, they're kind of out uh, completely clearly. Do you still buy into to the Deshaun Watson room? This is a guy that's kind of gone quiet. Like I mentioned last week or two, is this trade going to happen with him or Russell Wilson, or is this kind of all just smoke leading up to the season? Well, I said from the beginning that the whole Russell Wilson being traded thing was all smoke and mirrors. I think that was just a way of him and his agent basically telling Seattle, listen, 
this mediocre offensive line that I've been working with for the past, you know, few seasons, this is this is just not going to cut it. I'm sick and tired of getting beat up in the pocket. I'm sick and tired of having to run around for my life. I'm 32, 33 years old. This got to stop. All right, if either you build an offensive line around me or, you know, I'm out. And it's it's as basic as that. All right? So, I know I I knew from jump that Russell Wilson, they weren't going to move Russell Wilson. I, I pretty much knew that. Now, the Deshaun Watson situation, he wanted out in the worst way, shape, form, or fashion. And the tech, the tech, it would, a team would have to move like damn near their entire franchise to pretty much trade for the rights of Deshaun Watson. Now, with this current situation going on with Deshaun Watson and these allegations that have now started to come out and people, more people are starting to come forward, now it's a little bit more dicey. Teams aren't necessarily going to be, you know, jumping at the gun for his services considering all the allegations that's come out, all the things that's being said, all the things that's going down. They're pretty much, if they're not doing their entire research now, they're pretty much waiting and seeing how everything develops. And if things start to die down, if things start to disappear, or if, you know, witnesses all of a sudden, you know, they start, you know, retracting some of their comments, then I think the market will heat up for Deshaun Watson again. But until then, Deshaun Watson isn't going nowhere so long as these allegations keep coming forward. Yeah, uh, there's a key word here, Max, and it's rumor. Um, there, there's always going to be rumors with connecting now a quarterback to the Eagles because they've been so out apparently with them wanting a new quarterback, either drafting or trading. I think this is very bad for the situation of Jalen Hurts and the Eagles standpoint, but going to Deshaun Watson, he's poisonous right now to any team in the NFL. Um, you can't touch him. Um, you can't even, you can't even be associated with him or it's a bad thing. Um, I think the situation, I don't know how he's going to be able to come back from this situation. There's already a lot of allegations, a lot of people stepping forward and not to, to try to try to stay away from the whole, you know, the, the court situation and staying on, on sports. Deshaun Watson is, was a good quarterback for the Texans. Now he doesn't want to be in, in, in Houston, but leaving Houston and coming to a team like the Eagles. I don't know if that makes much sense. I don't know if that's much of an improvement. Uh, Then you're going to Russell Wilson. He's expressed his anger towards um, the no protection uh, on the field, but that's a problem. I believe Seattle can fix with a quarterback that's been with them for a while. He's brought them places. He's brought them to the playoffs plenty of times. Uh, the Super Bowl two years in a row. Um, I think that Seattle needs to do everything they can to satisfy Russell Wilson. And this is a, a hall of, you know, a future hall of fame quarterback. And I think Pete Carroll is going to be able to, to maneuver around. But if that doesn't happen for some reason, if Russell Wilson is just done because the Seattle Seahawks did go out and find out who would be interested in him. And that, that did, that did make him even more, uh, angry about the situation i do think the eagles are in a good spot now russell wilson complaining about the o-line you go into next year our offensive linemen are close to retirement at, at that point and go to depending on how this draft goes who this team has surrounding the quarterback uh skill wise i don't know if that's a good situation but definitely a good situation for the seahawks if he does not want to play for them getting the amount of picks that the Eagles are going to be able to give in return for Russell Wilson, 
that'll be I guess you could say that would be a win-win because the Eagles get a, a great veteran quarterback in return and the Seahawks they, they're ready to plan their future already after that and the Seahawks listen another team where you look at them and you look at where's their picks at right they traded all the way to the Jets with the Jamal Adams trade they don't have a first round pick this upcoming draft so there's a possibility that they could have Russell Wilson on the market. And again, you would talk about getting protection for him. They would have to get a little bit lucky later on in the draft and hopefully hit on a second or maybe a fourth or fifth round pick to be able to step in there and protect him, maybe an offensive lineman to, uh, you know, help him out there. But you look at these mock drafts specifically, and I feel like every week there's another trade going down. And a lot of these, you know, experts try to pick uh, what trades would go down at least early on weeks back where you would see a mock draft where you would have a team moving up and trading in and out of positions. And then an actual trade happens. We had like the Dolphins trade go down last week or two weeks ago. Now with the Eagles, you had the Carolina Panthers trade just going down. So as we get closer to the draft and even maybe on draft night, we'll continue to see trades. Do you expect another trade to go down major? Now I'm not saying, listen, there could be uh, second, third, uh, little, little things, but I'm talking about one of those teams that are up, maybe in that top 10, Talk about the Falcons rumored to have um, interest moving out of that spot. Do you see a scenario where another team possibly goes and moves up into the top five even, or do you think this is how it's going to play out uh, on draft night until maybe a deal is done then? Oh, absolutely. I still expect some deals to be done. Oh, absolutely. It, the deals are definitely not done yet. You know, like I said, some teams may wait till draft day to execute their trades. You know, we used to risk still three weeks out, you know, so, uh, a deal may come to a team's table where it completely knocks their socks off and it would, it would be a franchise changer. So no, absolutely not. The NFL is unpredictable. You know, that's the beautiful part about the off season. You never know exactly what's going to go down. You can predict and you can scout and, you know, think that you have these teams figured out all you want. The reality is this, you really, unless you're inside of, you know, the war room in the conference room with the general managers, you really don't know what a team is thinking. Let's be honest here. Who would have thought that the Philadelphia Eagles would have traded out of the number six overall pick? And then, like you guys keep mentioning, the Atlanta Falcons, you know, that is prime real estate for a team who's looking to grab one of these quarterbacks or even grab one of these playmakers. You know, that's prime real estate for a team that, you know, can jump up and in, in, to that number four spot. You know, especially considering that the Atlanta Falcons are probably looking to move down because, like the Eagles, they're looking to replace a whole bunch of pieces that they need. You know, the Matt Ryan's getting long in the tooth. You know, they have playmakers on the outside, but their defense is still in shambles. So Falcons could be a team, honestly, probably at the top of my list, most likely team that is most likely to be, you know, the next probably big trade going down. Now, a team that I look at is the Detroit Lions. They... They don't need to draft a quarterback because they got Jared Goff, but they do need to surround him with weapons. Um, now, whether that is trading their seventh pick for a guy who is is available on a, on a team in, in a trade, that's a situation as well. But this team does need a wide receiver. They have, what, Danny Amendola. That, that, that's basically it. Um, they're in a bad situation. Um, it was made better by getting Jared Goff. Now, not the best quarterback. Uh, I I have different opinions on, on Jared Goff than, than some other people. Mm -hmm. But the Lions, either they trade up or down in this situation because they either trade their pick away for a, a player, a, a wide receiver, or they draft a, a skill player. But I, I think if there is no skill player that they want, that they kept their eyes on available 
um, which would be weird because they have the seventh pick, they they would trade that pick. Um, I think that's how they're going to do it because once again, Jared Goff needs uh, needs a cast surrounding yes. him, or, or that whole that whole Matt Stafford trade just wouldn't have made sense then. Nope. That Lions franchise, I tell you, it's something else, man. I tell you. It could be worse. <laughs> yeah, we could be Lions fans, T. could be Lions fans. But listen, I want to throw it to you. I know you want to touch on the Dan Orlovsky and Justin Fields comments. And before you get into it, I just yeah. want to say Justin Fields, obviously none of us know what goes on behind closed doors with his workouts mm-hmm. and things like that. But from what I've seen on the field with him, super impressive. And then you look at that Clemson game where he was, you know, basically destroyed in the rib cage with that helmet to, hel- to rib cage hit. Mm-hmm. Stayed in the game, uh, threw, I think, two 70-yard bombs for touchdowns. Uh, th- this guy is going to be a good player in the NFL. I'll tell you that before I give it to you. But just from my personal experience watching him and what I can see, he's he's definitely going to be an NFL quarterback legit uh, for, for years to come, I think. Now, is he going to be an, an all-world talent? That remains to be seen. Right. I'm not saying he's going to be a, maybe a top-10 guy, but but right. can he be like a Baker Mayfield or somebody like that? You know, just you know, competent quarterback that can maybe lead you to the playoffs and maybe even win a game? I think so. That can come in, in the near future. See, in, in, see so – to get into the Dan Orlovsky thing. Um, so those of you that don't know, um, Dan Orlovsky was on Pat McAfee's podcast, and they were talking about Justin Fields. And Orlovsky had said something that really disturbed me, and this is not the first time that I've heard this, not about Justin Fields, but about the black quarterback agenda in general. So Orlovsky goes on, and he says that he hears you know, from people that – Justin Fields isn't as hard as a, isn't a hard worker. You know, he, you know, and you know, Olavsky has attacked him on, on a couple of occasions other than this as well. But just speaking from this podcast, you know, he was basically saying that, you know, these sources were saying that he doesn't work hard. He doesn't have a high work ethic. Um, he's the last guy to go into the field and the first guy to get off the field, like all these little things. And, you know, it, that bothers me because, Justin Fields is one of those guys that caught my eye even at the high school level. I was watching him. I've been watching him since high school. And if anything, how can you say that a person doesn't have a high work ethic when Justin Fields is one of the few players that's really responsible for the Big Ten even having a collegiate season this past year considering the pandemic? It was Justin Fields who led the cause for the Big Ten to even have their season, okay? So what do you mean exactly that he doesn't have a high work ethic? And I understand that, you know, this is hearsay and these aren't your words and, you know, it's just a rumor. However, I hear rumors all the time, okay? You guys hear rumors all the time. If we were, if we reported and talked about every single rumor that we heard or that came across us, let's be honest here, man, there would be so many twisted stories out there that it, it wouldn't make any kind of sense whatsoever. So here's my thing. And I keep hearing this about black quarterbacks in general as well, that, you know, I always hear every single year that, you know, Black quarterbacks don't have a high work ethic and things of that nature. And, you know, and it, it reminds me of the current situation that Cam Newton is in and that in the scrutiny that he receives. And it, it's it's annoying to me at this point. And it's completely irresponsible. I mean, shoot, Mel Kuyper. I watched Mel Kuyper last night. All right. He was talking to somebody, not Mel Kuyper. It was Todd McShay. Todd McShay 
was talking about Jalen Hurts, and he was saying that Jalen Hurts isn't going isn't going to be a championship caliber quarterback. How in the hell do you know if he's going to be a championship caliber quarterback or not? How do you know? He's only played four damn games in the NFL with a sorry ass team. How can you make that judgment? That's the thing that that pisses me off, and I don't understand it to this day. How the hell? Do you, as a professional analyst, project somebody's future and you don't even know what the hell is going on behind the scenes 110%? That bugs me. That annoys me. Listen, it's one thing to have an opinion, but because of the stature that you have, because people listen to you and because people follow you, you need to be more responsible with your words. Stop saying things like that. That's going to cause a controversy. That annoyed me. You're not even giving Jalen Hurts a chance. Put some playmakers around him, and let's see what he can do. Now, if he fails, he fails. That's fine. But the things that I've seen from Jalen Hurts, dude is a hard worker. I've heard nothing but positive things from his collegiate days up into the NFL now. He's taking this, you know, this starting quarterback thing responsibly. He's taking the receivers down to Texas, and he's worked with them. Like, I've heard nothing but positive things. So these negative things that I keep hearing, especially considering, you know, most of the things that I'm hearing negative come are black quarterbacks. I'm sick of it at this point, and it needs to stop. T, they're all going to get the opportunity this season. You have Trey Lance coming out in, in this year's draft as well, Justin Fields, of course, and Jalen Hurts. He's going to get his opportunity, we assume, this upcoming year, it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting year, and and for for Jalen Hurts. Before we wrap everything up here, guys, Jalen Hurts changing his number to number one. Is there throwing some shade there to these critics about you know he's the number one guy and he's the man, or is it maybe even more than that? He doesn't want to be uh, number two related to uh, Carson Wentz out there in Indy. I, I hope. Listen, I, whatever his agenda may be, I'm pulling for him. I'm pulling for him all the way to prove people wrong and to shut people up. I am. Truly. And listen, if you and to win football games, too. Yeah, yes. and and if he, listen, if he wants to change it to number one, just to be petty because Carson Wentz is now number two, be my guest. I'm all for it. I hope it is, man. I'm, I'm all about <laughs> it. I'm all about the energy. I'm all about the, the, the throw shake. Cause listen, we're going to need it. We need somebody to bring the energy and lead this team. I like it. I completely agree. So yeah. go ahead, Tanner. I think Jalen Hurst is actually the first player in Eagles history, uh, aside from obviously a punter or a kicker that that's donned the number one. That is true. Um, I think Max, I think he's shedding his last season self. I, I think he wants to start brand new. Uh, he's now the starter uh, of this football team and maybe it does have something to do with Carson Wentz number, but uh, it also could say, Hey, I am the number one guy here and, and don't, don't get it twisted. I, I'm the number one guy. I'm going to prove it to you. And, but I really don't think Jalen hurts is that kind of player to throw that much shade. I, I think he's more of a prove it on the field kind of guy. And uh, I think that maybe looking more into this situation, yeah, I think he's just trying to shed his past last season self, and he he's starting brand new, uh, new season, uh, and and new him. I buy into it. I think you know, you guys, you guys know me. I've been a Wentz guy from day one. Now that he's gone, and and we're looking at Jalen Hurts, obviously drafting the quarterback, and and even me saying on the pod, even about a couple months ago, at this point, taking Zach Wilson going up there wouldn't be the worst idea, and. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that was an opportunity because we heard the rumors come out and the Eagles tried doing that. But now that Jalen Hurts coming into this game or coming into the season, I should say, changing his, changing his number, 
like like Tanner said, shedding his previous self from last season, which was, let's be honest, an abysmal season for the Eagles. Having him play, what, 10 games and, and this stupid ass, let's throw him in there for two plays and run around or whatever. Just terrible. And then you, you tell a kid to lose on purpose in the last game. This, I mean, listen, put last year behind you. Switch the number up. I like it. Even the littlest things matter, my opinion. Go out right. there, lead the team, be the QB one, and and we'll see what happens. Anybody with the with the final thoughts here, final word, guys? Yeah, j- just one, just one more thing. The Eagles could not tell Jalen Hurts to lose that game, and that's why they had to take him out because Jalen Hurts is not that kind of player. No, right. um, and I think that 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 shows what type of guy Jalen Hurts is, and that really gets me excited for this year. He's a tremendous athlete. Um, we saw him pull a full grown man into the end zone. Um, I forget which game it was, but Arizona. that's really yeah, when I was Arizona. like, that's really when I was like, wow, this Jalen Hurts guy, man. Now he he can prove it on the ground. I want to see him prove it more so in the air. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, agreed. And and he had the, he had the two rushing touchdowns you mentioned against the Redskins or, or the Washington Football Team uh, last season before you know he was pulled out of the game because he was you know trying to win too hard. I guess you could say, but um, <laughs> I know we're excited. Listen, the draft coming up less than a month away now. We're excited for it again. See, let's wrap it up. I know you want to touch on, on the live draft reaction as well. Yes. Uh, so if you missed any of this episode, you can always go to philly-experience.simplecast.com. Available on all major downloadable platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Follow us on Instagram at the Philly Experience. On Twitter at dphillyexp one on Twitter. We are about three weeks away from the draft, and we will be doing a live draft reaction. I'm going to start posting. We're going to start posting about it every week leading up to it. So get your popcorn ready. We're going to have a call line ready. All right. We're going to be doing it live on Twitch, on YouTube. So you're not going to want to miss it because something tells me I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to yell at night. <laughs> <laughs> I just got the sneaky suspicion. I'm going to go off. Quit yucking my yum. He needs to learn how to wrap that thing up. giving Jerry Jones my money? F*** that guy. I want me some drawer help. <laughs> Surprise, motherfucker.